All right, so Mark 1, 35 through 45. I'm going to read the whole thing here, and then we'll take it apart. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, that's Jesus, uh, went out and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. He went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he, he was made clean. Then he sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, see that you say nothing to anyone. But go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he was out in deserted places and they came to him from everywhere. So we see some similar themes already from what we talked about last week and what we're going to be talking about next week too. Um, that Jesus is continuing this ministry, continuing to go into synagogues, he's preaching, he's healing people, he's casting out demons. But we start off in verse 35, and it says that very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. And this is the first thing Jesus does, presumably in the morning, is he's getting up, it's still dark. I have a hard time doing that these days. Um, I don't know about you. Um, it'll be easier when it gets dark earlier, right? But for now, it's really hard for me to get up really early unless a child walks into my room and wakes us up, which has been happening more and more. Um, we just switched the littlest one into a big boy bed, and now he can just leave when he wants. He's not in a little cage, so he'll just come and wake us up. He just appears in the doorway, and it's terrifying when you wake up, and he's just there. Um, but this is the first thing Jesus does. He wakes up, presumably a little baby didn't wake him up. Um, and he goes and he starts praying. He gets away from the noise of people and the city that he's in. And the word deserted place here, if we were reading Greek, it should be very familiar because in chapter 1, when Jesus is tempted, um, he goes out into the desert, that word, in the, or in the wilderness, that word, eremos, is the same word that's used here. So he's not just leaving and going to a different room. He's not just getting away to you know, a, a prayer closet, or I'm going to just walk down the street. He's getting away. He's leaving and going pretty far out of town just to be quiet and be with God. Um, he's leaving the applause of crowds to get to a place of seriousness. And he's praying, and I always have this question when Jesus is praying, like, what is that about? Because we get to this Trinitarian weird space where Jesus is God, but he's not the Father, he's not the Spirit, right? And it's, it gets real messy, and you say, well, what does Jesus need to pray about? Because he'd be talking to himself, but not himself, but kind of himself. And, it's, and people have tried to figure it out for so long that they've come up with all these phrases that end up being heretical at some point. Like, we like to say that Jesus is uh, fully God and fully man. Well, you can't be 100% two things. That Anyone knows math, that doesn't work. So he is truly God and truly man. But what does that mean? And we're not going to get into it. But just, just something to think about, that Jesus is praying when he doesn't have to. He, you know, he, he is God. He doesn't have to talk to himself, but he is. He's still communing with the Father. He's still communing with the Spirit. He's putting this importance on prayer that's so important that he's getting up early to take a long hike to get out of town and pray in quiet. And in Mark, he only does this three times in Mark. He prays three times, and they're always at very critical parts of his ministry. 
So here he is, he's praying where the ministry's about to pick up. Things are about to start happening for Jesus um, and with his ministry here. And so he's, he's praying in the wilderness. And verse 36, Simon and his companions, the other disciples so far, they're searching for him. And when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. Now, everyone is looking for you is kind of a loaded statement because they're not just saying, hey, there's people that are looking for you. You know, that, that's not the end of the statement. Jesus, I'm here to report that everyone is looking for you. They want something with this statement. They're saying, everyone is looking for you, so come and be with everyone and do the things that they want you to do, right? People know about Jesus. Um, before this, this part, the last part of what Dave preached on last week, Jesus was, um, he went to Simon's house and healed Simon's mom, and then they opened the door and there's all these people there, right? And they worked from that time long into the night healing people and casting out demons and preaching. So everyone knows who he is, and there's a line of people already. They're looking for him. They say, what, we need more Jesus. We need him to do these things for us. Um, but Jesus has already chosen the more important thing, right? He's been communing with God. And he responds to them in verse 38, and he says, well, let's go to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. And we can see this in, in our own kind of human perspective. We can think, well, why is Jesus leaving? Like, there's people here that need him, that want to be with him, that want what Jesus has for them. So, so what is he, why is he leaving this place? Couldn't he go to another town later? Um, but, but we see here that this is why Jesus came, right? He says, I was sent for this purpose. What is that purpose? Well, he, proclaimed, he came to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God. He came to preach. He came to um, preach this message. Sometimes when we're reading Mark, and any of Matthew, Mark, or Luke, um, any of those Gospels, there are things that maybe don't make a lot of sense. So you can go and look at the other Gospels and see, well, did this guy forget about this when he was writing it down? You know, what, was this, you know, they have different focuses, different emphases in these different Gospels. So sometimes so one guy will say something, the other guy won't talk about it. Luckily for us, if we flip over to Luke chapter 4, um, verse 43, we have some reasons why Jesus was leaving and what he was talking about, what his purpose was. In Luke 4:43, it says, But he said to them, It is necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. So we've already heard this, that he says, Let's go to other villages so I can preach there too, so I have come. And the, Luke reiterates that. And we say, Well, what is this good news he came to proclaim? And then Luke tells us again in um, chapter 5, verse 31. He says, uh, Jesus replied to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So why did Jesus come? Well, he came to heal the sick, yes, because obviously he's doing that. He's already healed people who are sick. He's already cast out demons. But there's another part of this. Um, Jesus does heal people um, still. He did then. But beyond that, he has this message of repentance from sin. So we're at, why are all these people looking for him in, in Capernaum? They're looking for him to be healed. They're looking for him to cast out demons. They want something from Jesus. Um, but what Jesus wants, he doesn't want anything from us but repentant hearts. So he has, there's these people in this village who say, oh, we want Jesus, but do they really want Jesus or do they want what Jesus can give them? Um, there's a difference here. And Jesus is saying, well, there's other people that need to hear this message too. Almost as if he's saying, there's other people here that need to hear this and then maybe they'll want the repentance. They, they, they'll want to be repentant. They don't just want me for the healing, right? So Jesus 
packs up with his disciples, and they head out. Verse 39 and 40 says, He went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Then a man with leprosy came to him, and on his knees begged him, If you are willing, can you make me clean? So he left Capernaum, and he goes into this area around Capernaum. And I always think of, you know, I try and think about um, ancient Israel and first century Israel. And what was that like? Were these cities big? Were they small? Because sometimes you hear about these big cities, and they were like 25,000 people, which is a lot of people, but that's like the, the enrollment at like a community college for a, a semester. Like, it's big, but it's not that mind-blowingly big. Um, so I think, well, how did word spread so fast for Jesus here? Luckily, we have other people we can ask these questions to. So um, we can look at my buddy, Flavius Josephus. And um, there he is. Look at him. Styling. He's got that, that drip, as the kids would say. Um, but love the turban. Love the chains. Very cool beard. He's a cool guy. So he, um, Josephus was a Jewish historian, um, and he lived... Um, after Jesus died, just, just after, he was in 37 to about 100 AD, and he wrote a bunch of books like the Antiquities of the Jews and all these histories about the area there. And um, a lot of biblical scholars look to his work because he talks about Jesus, and he's one of those earliest historians who talks about Jesus not in the Bible. Um, and so, but Josephus, Josephus tells us something about this area, and he wrote about this area, and he said, the cities lie very thick, and the very many villages that are there that are here and every, are everywhere so full of people because of the richness of their soil that the very least of these contain more than 15,000 inhabitants. So he's saying that all these villages around Capernaum, the smallest ones still have 15,000 people. So if you are in Capernaum and you're just there for business because it's like a big capital city of the region, but you got to go back to your little village, maybe you've heard about this Jesus guy. He's casting out demons, and now you go back to your village that still has 15,000 people in it. You tell someone there. They start talking. Someone goes to another one. You know, word gets around pretty quickly. So there's this guy that is walking down the road, and he has leprosy, and he sees Jesus and has heard about him, obviously, because he says to him, if you're willing, will you make me clean? And we'll get to his statement in a second, but first we need to talk about leprosy. So leprosy, also known as Hansen's disease today, um, is a bacterial infection. And your first symptoms, you start getting like these white patches or red patches on your skin. And um, eventually you can die from it because it'll cause death of your nerve endings. So then if you can't feel anything in your hand and you bump into something and get a nasty cut, you don't know. Especially at this time when there's not great hygiene, it gets infected. And then eventually maybe your thumb falls off or your fingers and it can be really bad. And that infection can spread everywhere and you can die. Um, so it's not a fun thing to get. Today, we can heal it because we have antibiotics, and it's not as big of a deal. Um, but back then, there was nothing you could do if you got leprosy. Um, and it had this huge social impact, right? So if you had leprosy, uh, you had to live outside of town. You had to walk around wrapped up in all these robes with just, like, your eyes showing. Um, and you had to, everywhere you walked around, you had to yell, unclean, unclean, so everyone would get out of your way when you walked through the town. In fact, some... Um, uh, Jewish philosophers at the time, they would say that if you, um, if you shared the shade of the same tree with someone who had leprosy, you also were unclean. And if you look at Leviticus 13 and 14, I thought about trying to pick out some of these rules, but there's two whole chapters in Leviticus completely dedicated to if you have leprosy, 
here's what you have to do. If you've come in contact with someone with leprosy, here's what you have to do. If you're trying to get cleansed of leprosy, here's what you have to do. And it's so much. So if you're interested, look it up. But there's two whole chapters of a book of the Bible all about what to do if you get leprosy. Um, so this was this greatly feared thing. So much so that when it says leprosy in Scripture, it may not actually be leprosy proper, Hansen's disease. It may be eczema. It might be psoriasis. It might be some really bad dandruff. Because if you think about it, and first John brought this up when we were having our preaching team meeting, we were talking through our, our messages. Um, you may not know, John Paternoster once lived at a hospital for lepers in Africa. And he pointed out that in Africa, where everyone's skin is much darker, a white spot is a lot more visible than like someone like me. So if you get a white spot, and it might not be leprosy, it might be eczema, it might be list another skin condition, the people around you are going to get worried because it could be leprosy. And if it's leprosy, I could get leprosy, and I don't want leprosy. So there are all kinds of things that are kind of lumped into this leprosy category. This very, very well have been leprosy this man had, Hansen's disease leprosy, or it could have been a bad rash. We don't know. Um, but it was really hard to get rid of. And I have a cute little armadillo on there just to let everyone know public service announcement. Le armadillos carry the bacteria that gives you leprosy, so if you see an armadillo ever, don't touch it, because you can get leprosy, and you don't want that. Um, so they're cute, and they look cuddly. Don't touch them. There's, all, there's this movie I watched when I was a kid, and they, they made an armadillo into a ball and used it like in a sport, and I always thought, I want to get an armadillo and just dribble them around, because they're so cute and it'd be fun. But you can't do it, because you'd get leprosy, maybe. Um, Anyway, so back to this guy with leprosy or similar condition. So he, he comes up to Jesus, and he, and he is doing something that he shouldn't be doing anyway. Because like I said, if you're walking around and you have leprosy, you have to be saying, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, stay away. And what is this unclean? Yes, it means I'm infected, but it's more than that. Being unclean is making you physically diseased, but you're cut off from, from everyone. From, even from God. You can't go to the temple and do all of these things. You can't go to the temple and make your sacrifices if you're unclean because you can't be around people with leprosy. You can't go and be a part of the community of, of believers because you have leprosy and you're unclean. So yes, physically devastating disease, but these people were completely cast out of society. They had no one to talk to except for other lepers, I guess. Um, people would like leave food for them in the road and then back away so that they could come and get it like you're you know, leaving food for like a raccoon or something if you're feeding a raccoon. <laughs> I looked at my wife, she loves raccoons. Um, so this is, a, this is a really terrible thing. In fact, um, yeah, the, the rabbis at the time said it's, more it's as difficult to cleanse a leper as it is to raise the dead because they couldn't do it. It just wasn't a thing that happened. So, but this guy says to Jesus, if you are willing, will you make me clean? He doesn't say, can you make me clean? He doesn't say, I've heard things about you saying you might maybe be able to do this thing. He knows Jesus can do it, and he's just saying, if you're willing, will you do this thing for me? And he's not asking for healing, right? If this was a Greek or a Gentile, they may have said to him, if you're willing, will you heal me of my leprosy? But he wants more than that. I don't think Mark was just using, you know, was, was being careless with his language when he said that the leper said, clean, make me clean. He didn't say, make me well. He didn't say, heal me. He didn't say, get this stuff off my skin. He said, make me clean, because his need is deeper than just a physical healing. In verse 41, Jesus, um, it says, Jesus was moved with compassion. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. Jesus' response to the sick man was not disgust, right? He didn't say, oh, you're unclean, get away from me. 
He wasn't afraid of the leprosy he could have caught if it was actual leprosy or whatever it was. Um, he had compassion on him. But some of you might be a little confused if you're looking at a different translation, and you might say, well, mine says that Jesus was indignant and then said, I'm willing to be made clean. And this is all have to do with which manuscripts translators use, but I figured if, I know that it's in some pretty popular translations, so we should talk about it. So why would Jesus be indignant when this man says to him, please help me? Um, and I think if you look at all the context of the passage, I think it paints a picture that Jesus is not indignant or angry with the man, but with the ravages of sin that this man is experiencing. Jesus was there at the beginning. He, the world and everything was spoken into existence through him. It says that in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and all things were created through the word. That's Jesus. So he looks out and sees his creation and he sees that there are things that just aren't right. Um, and he's angry about that. I thought about, um, I was trying to think of like what's a good illustration for this and then I thought about this. So when I was uh, 17, I was working on my Eagle Scout project and my Eagle Scout project was to build some benches along a stretch of a bike trail in Portage. And, um, you know, they had a nice concrete pad, they had their nice composite materials, so they're going to last forever. And so we put these three benches in, and it was a good, great thing. I got my Eagle badge, and everything was great. And then there was one section of this trail you could drive by on the road and see it, and you, I would always see my bench. We'd drive by and be like, there's my bench. There it is. And then one day we drove past, and everything was all torn up, and my bench was gone. And I looked at it, and I was like, what happened to my bench? And this was like three months after I put in the benches. And I looked at it, and I was like, what happened here? And then, you know, they finished their work, and then there's two different benches there. And I was a little indignant. Um, and I looked at it, and I was like, what was wrong with the bench I had put in before? Like, what? I mean, the city told me that's the one I should do. They gave me the stuff um, to do it. And I looked at it, and I was just like, what happened there? And I, I think that Jesus is looking at his creation and thinking, I made this good, and it's not so good right now. And there's just that little, you know, that irritation that we all feel when we might do something. You know, if, if you're a kid, you guys have, like, group projects, which I always hated for this very reason, that you, you start your group project, and maybe someone is, is in charge of writing this paragraph, and you're doing this one, and someone has to make this slideshow or whatever, and you make it, and then they change it, and it's not what you wanted it to be, and you hate that, and not because I hate that. And you just get so little angry with it. And I feel like this is what Jesus is experiencing. This is why I think he's, he's, this is why he's indignant with this man. Not with him, but like looking at his condition and being like, look what sin has done to this creation that I made that was good. Look what sin has done to this man that I knit together in his mother's womb. Look what the ravages of the fall have done. So Jesus touches him. And notice it says that he touches him. And then he says, I'm willing to be made clean. The touch happened first. So, theoretically, Jesus is touching a man who was unclean and therefore making himself unclean according to the laws of Leviticus and Moses. And this is a great illustration of the gospel because Jesus, when, when we are living our lives in sin without Jesus, we don't have the hope of the resurrection of Christ. And at some point, if you become a Christian, you've had this encounter with Jesus. And he encounters you before you've been made clean, before you've accepted um, his gift of forgiveness, and, and you've repented, you have this encounter, right? It's not like you encounter him and you're like, oh, I've already asked him and now I've encountered. There's this meeting before it happens. And just like this man, Jesus is meeting us in our uncleanness. 
He's meeting us in the spot where we're unclean and he's offering us the cleansing, the healing, the repentance, the forgiveness. Um, there was a, a quote in the commentary I was reading that was attributed to a guy that I could not figure out. Maybe it wasn't a guy, I don't know. It was just H. van der Loos. He's a Dutch person. And this person said, the ceremonial law gives place to the law of love when the two come into collision. That Jesus is touching this man before he's clean, which he shouldn't have done because ceremonial law said you don't touch, touch people who have leprosy. But because of his love for this man, that's taken the higher, the higher place. In our, uh, uh, at nine this morning, he, he talked about um, what Jesus, you know, when Jesus is asked about what the greatest commandments are. And he says it's to love God uh, with everything you have. And the second one is like that, it's to love your neighbor. This is that law of love that is the first and second greatest commandments that he is saying, these are more important than the ceremonial laws that say, now I have to go and present myself to a priest and I have to wait seven days and I have to go back and I have to do all this stuff that's in Leviticus 13 and 14. Um, he is leading with the law of love. Verse 42, he says, immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. This is, there's that immediately again that, that Dave talked about where sometimes it's, it's really important and I think in this case it is that it wasn't, there wasn't some time that elapsed before the leprosy was, was taken away from him. Jesus said, be made clean, boom, he was clean. And it wasn't like, you know, Mark's writing this, having heard this secondhand, he wasn't there. Peter, who's, we think, telling Mark to write this stuff, was there and saw it happen. He said, right away, this guy was clean. And this isn't, uh, oh, you know, there are some conditions that Jesus heals that you might not be able to tell just by looking at someone. But if someone has leprosy, they got these spots, they have these open wounds, they have these infections, you can see that. And so immediately, this guy was clean. He hasn't even seen the priest yet. How is he clean? He hasn't followed the ritual cleansing. How has he been made clean? This says something about who Jesus is, um, that he can do this cleansing without going through all these ceremonial laws. Verse 43. Then he sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Here we see another time of Jesus telling people, Shut your mouth and don't say anything about what I've just done to you, um, done for you. And we ask again, Why? Dave talked last week about you know, not wanting a demon to say things about Jesus because demons are liars notoriously, and so if you hear a bunch of things from a liar, you don't believe them, right? If a liar always tells you the lies and then says the truth in there sometime, you're still not going to believe that truth. But here is a different time where Jesus is telling him, don't say anything to anybody. Go right to the priests and go do this, these cleansing rituals. Is he already clean? Yes. Jesus said he's already clean. Does he have to do the cleansing rituals to be made clean? No. So why is he doing it? He says to do it as a testimony to them, to the priests, a testimony to the priests. Leprosy, again, was thought to be impossible to heal, but it has been healed. So this impossible thing has happened. So now he has to go tell the priest and say, there's this guy, Jesus, he healed me of leprosy. Look, I'm clean. Now this guy had probably been to the temple before because if you have leprosy, you're not just going to be like, oh, well, rats. No, I guess I'm done with society and everything. You go to the temple to try and do these rituals to follow the law, to be cleansed, so you can re-enter the world. As much as some people I know say, I don't like people, you, you kind of need people. Um, you know, they've done studies on 
on animals and even some people that were not so ethical, like when they don't have human interaction, when they don't have human touch, or when they don't have touch at all, animals and people just kind of die. So he needs people. He needs to go see them. He's been in the temple before. Now he's going back, and he's showing them. They, they probably know who he is, right? A leper comes in for cleansing. You're going to know who these people are, so you know that they can't be in town. They can't be here. Um, and so he goes and, and to show these um, priests that he's been healed as a legitimate, as uh, a this is proof of the legitimacy of Jesus' claims about who he is and what he's doing. And the second reason is that if he's telling other people first, there may be people who don't like what Jesus is saying. Maybe. I mean, there were and there are and continue to be. And, um, and they are going to hear this thing and say, okay, this guy said X, Y, and Z. I'm going to find reasons why the things he said are wrong. So if you're going out and telling everybody this is true and people don't like it, they may try and undercut your arguments. So he's saying, go right to these priests, do this thing. But does he listen? No. And in verse 45, we see, um, see that he didn't. He says, uh, it says, yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news with the result that Jesus could no longer enter town openly, but was out in the, in the deserted places and it came to him from everywhere. So Jesus had to stay out in those eremost places again, in the deserted places. Again, the same word of the place where he was tempted, where he prayed, and now he's there again. So people are, but, but people are still coming. Um, that's an interesting thing, right? He says, don't tell anybody. It's not because he, has, he thinks people won't come. It's because now he can't go into these cities. He can't preach in the synagogues. We don't know maybe why that was so important. Um, there's definitely timing things that ha- need to happen for Jesus. He knows the Old Testament. He knows the prophecy. Um, I'm not going to try and guess why exactly that wasn't important, but we know it was for him, and now he can't be out in, he can't be in these places, but people are still coming. So we have this story. We see this narrative. We see what's happening, and we ask, again, there's always the, so what? What do we do with this? And we're going to go back to those questions that we've been trying to answer um, through this whole series, and we say, well, who is Jesus? Well, first, Jesus is the one that can do the impossible. It was impossible to heal leprosy. And still is impossible to heal leprosy if you don't have antibiotics to get rid of the bacteria that are causing the infection. Um, you can't do it. And like, yeah, there are some plants or whatever that have those in there, but to get the quantity of antibiotic in you, it, that would be a feat. Um, so practically impossible to heal leprosy without antibiotics today, and then you don't have a chance. But Jesus is the one who's doing the impossible thing. He is healing this person of leprosy, the thing that everyone thought was the equivalent of raising the dead, which he's going to do later. Um, so he's doing these impossible things. Jesus is someone who shows compassion for outcasts. This guy, no one was going to talk to him. You stayed away because you didn't want to get leprosy. You didn't want your nose falling off, so you stay away from this guy. Um, but Jesus is, is interacting with him, and not in a way that's like dismissive, like, I'll do this thing for you if you just leave. He's touching him. He's, he's sharing a human moment with him. We forget sometimes that Jesus, truly God, was also truly man and, and, and had these human moments with, with people. And we, and, we're, and we are supposed to be doing these same things too, right? Like, this is why um, when we are having the compassion on people, Sorry, I'm looking at my slides and they're all jacked up on my sheet. All right, we'll get back to that in a second. Um, what other things did Jesus do? Jesus is angered by the brokenness of the world. We see this every day, right? You look at what's going on. You look at the news any day. There's, there's been a, a land war in Europe going on for like two years now, which is never, no one thought that would happen again. There's 
coups in Africa now, like West Africa, like every other week. There's a war that's been going on in Yemen for a long, long time. There's droughts in Sudan. People are dying all over the place. We see all kinds of injustice. There's, you know, in our, not in, you know, closer to home, we see abuse in churches. We see abuse by, I guess now football coaches. That's a thing. Um, And so all these things are happening, all these broken, horrible moments. And we look at the world and we get angry. Jesus was angry too. He was indignant with the sin and the brokenness of our world. And he was the one who made it. How much more of a right did he have to be indignant about it than we do when we're part of the creation? He's the creator and his thing has been messed up by somebody else. Um, so we can relate to Jesus in that, that Jesus was angered by the brokenness of the world. So what did he do when he was experiencing all these things? Well, Jesus cleanses and heals. He healed the guy of leprosy, right? We, we've seen him heal other people. Next week, you're going to see him heal even more people. Um, and, but he's doing more than that. He's cleansing them. And cleansing them isn't just, giving, I mean, obviously, he's not giving them a bath, right? That's not the cleansing. He's making them spiritually clean. And how does that happen? Well, he has to forgive sins for that to happen. And that's going to be, you'll see Pastor John talk about that next week, and people aren't going to be pleased about Jesus forgiving sins. That's something that only God can do. He is God, so. Um, but, but he's forgiving sins. He's cleansing people. And he also made prayer a priority. Again, this is something that is still weird for me to think about, Jesus praying. But he did it every day, and Clearly, he's making it such a big deal. He's going for a long hike to get out of town to do it. And I think about in my life, how do I make prayer a priority? Am I making prayer a priority? You know, sometimes I'm driving to work, I'll pray, or, you know, we've been praying with Jack before he goes to school every day. Um, but am I, is, it, is that enough? Am I, do I need to do more making things a priority? Do I need to shuffle around when I go to bed, when I wake up, so that I can spend some serious time with God the way Jesus was doing it, too? And then finally, we ask, well, what does this tell us about the kingdom of God? And we can see that the kingdom of, is marked by love uh, for the lowly. That the kingdom of God that we keep seeing, Jesus is healing people who are sick, who are outcast. He is healing people, um, freeing them from demonic oppression who were not someone you want to talk to. Like there's that guy who lives in a graveyard who's wearing chains and naked all the time. Like no one talked to him. He was a crazy man because he, he had demons. But you didn't talk to that guy. But Jesus' kingdom was marked by love for those people. Um, if you think about even the early church, and we see how, how people have lived this out, there was uh, this plague that happened in 250 AD. It's called the Cyprian Plague. And about 100 years before, there was another plague that had killed a quarter of Rome, a third to a quarter. We don't really know exactly, but a lot of people. And so when this happened again, people were freaking out, right? Because they just had this not too long ago. They had this horrible experience. And we can kind of relate to that too now, right? We just had this pandemic that's still simmering. Lots and lots of people died. And, and you can imagine the fear. And so people in Rome are just fleeing the city. Everyone's getting out if they can, but the people who can't are just kind of stuck there, right? Because not everyone has a villa over in wherever that they can go to, but some Romans did. And um, the, the Roman citizens there, they're throwing people in the streets before they're even dead, like a Monty Python sketch. I'm not dead yet. You know, they're just throwing people in the street. They're still sick, and everyone's leaving, except for one group of people, and that was the Christians of the early church. They stayed behind. They were giving people food. They were giving people water. They were nursing people as best they could. Obviously, medicine wasn't what it is now. They couldn't do a whole lot, but they did what they could, and this was noted by multiple Roman historians, Galen talked about it, other people were talking about how it's strange, these Christians, everyone else is leaving for this plague that's going to kill a lot of people, 
and they stayed. They had love for the people who were on the outcast. I mean, they were literally being thrown in the street and people were walking on them was one of the reports I read. And they weren't dead. They were just sick. Um, And the church was, you talk about the downtrodden. Those people were down and trodden upon. And the, the church was having love for them. Why? Because the kingdom is marked by love for the lowly. The kingdom restores. Um, William Lane, the author of the commentary I've been reading, he wrote, Salvation transcends cultic and ritual regulations, which were powerless to arrest the hold that death had upon the living, and issues in a radical healing. He's saying that salvation that Jesus brings is bigger than any ritual laws you can do, and those laws, even as important as they were, they still couldn't stop people from dying. Like, everyone's going to die. Death marches on. There's nothing that could be done to stop it, except that there's this, this salvation. There's this restoration that Jesus brings, that, that when, when we die as Christians, we know it's not the end, that there's going to be a resurrection. And why do we know that? Because our king was resurrected. He, he died, and he came back. We know it's not the end. There's a restoration that's coming. Um, and, and, we can, and this restoration isn't just to our physical stuff, right? It's not just that we're not going to die. We talked in the conflict class that there's restoration of relationship, of, of community that comes from the gospel, that comes from the salvation of Jesus, that our restoration, yes, we want the, the physical restoration of things. We want to know that every tear will be wiped away and there won't be any more sickness or death, and we want that. But right now, in our lives now, there's still restoration. There's still healing. There's still freedom from from things that Jesus offers with salvation. Um, we see that the message of, the, of Jesus' kingdom is repentance. And now this is important, and I want to make a point that it, it goes hand in hand with the restoration. Because I think I've seen, at least in my life, that there's, there's these generally, obviously these are broad generalizations, but there's kind of two theological camps in Protestant churches, right? There's a more liberal um, side and a more conservative side, and I don't mean that in a political sense, but of how you're applying scripture. Um, and the more liberal side of things will do a really good job, actually, of focusing on issues of, of injustice in our communities and addressing them and feeding hungry people and dealing with um, maybe unjust systems and things that are hurting people in those ways. And then there's the conservative side, which really focuses on people's repentance and forgiveness of sins and those things. And that's really good, too. But sometimes both of these sides will miss the point of the other side. And we need to remember that, yes, the kingdom is restoring things. That's broken systems in our society. That's health issues. That's, um, you know, all of these things that are physically manifested and, un- and, you know, maybe not physically. But Jesus also is asking, is, is coming and saying, you need to repent of your sins. Yes, he has healing for you. Yes, he wants um, to free you from uh, injustice and pain and all of these things that he promises will be dealt with later. But he also says that there are sins that we have in our lives and we need to repent of those sins, and we need to come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. And we can't have these, these things aren't intention, these things aren't exclusive, these things work together. Um, but the message that Jesus is bringing is one of repentance. And finally, as we're going to kind of keep seeing over and over again, Jesus has authority in his kingdom. He has authority over spiritual things and physical things. He's cleansing a guy with leprosy, which is a spiritual thing, but also his physical is following along with it. These things aren't, again, these aren't exclusive. So we continue to ask the question in the Gospel of Mark, who is Jesus? Um, I always try to think of, you know, at the end of a sermon, well, what do, what do we, how do I tell people to apply this? And I don't, these ones are hard because I'm just, here's a, here's a thing that Jesus did, let's talk about it. What do we do with this? 
And I think the answer is that when we, we ask the questions, who is Jesus? What did he do? What is the kingdom like? We need to look back at who he was, what he did, what is the kingdom like, and sit and look at it and say, does our life reflect that? Obviously, your life's not going to reflect the authority that Jesus had, right? Your life's not going to reflect the fact that he is part of the Godhead, part of the Trinity, that he is divine. That's not going to be reflected. But we can look at it and say, well, am I making prayer a priority? Can I forgive people who've sinned against me? Um, I can't heal people physically, but can I heal relationships that may be broken in my, in my life? Um, can I look at the kingdom of God and say, am I participating in this thing that cares for the people who are lowly? Am I trying to bring restoration to relationships and situations I'm in? Um, am I repenting of the sins in my life? And am I yielding what I am and everything I am to the authority that Jesus has in this kingdom? So let, let's think about those things as we go through Mark. We ha ask these questions. Let's try and apply those questions um, to our current situation.